to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 3, as we follow along with today's lesson. Now, it is interesting you go today to the Western Wall, and you watch them as they come to pray. Some of them are very loud, but most of them are bobbing and weaving and and bowing, you know. (laughs) And and that draws attention. And and the more spiritual you are, the, the, the more you bow, the more activated you are. I mean, and people look at that and say, wow, look at those devotions, you know. And so Jesus is condemning that which is done to attract attention to you or to draw attention to yourself. Now, to lay it out straight, I have been in services where during the singing of the choruses, there are people who will stand up, you know, here and there in the auditorium, some of them doing a little, you know, dance and, and all. But these things attract attention to the individual. They take away the attention from God. At least with me they do. I think, what are they thinking as they're standing there? Why do they always sit down near the front row? <laughs> Drawing attention to themselves and distracting people from the true worship of God. It was typical of the Pharisees. Jesus said they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and they lay them on men's shoulders. In other words, they they lay upon people these really heavy regulations, but they're not keeping them themselves. They won't even try and lift them with one of their little fingers. But all their works, and here it is, here it is, you got it. All of their works they do to be seen of men. That's the flaw. The public display, to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries. Now the phylacteries was a little leather box. And under the Mosaic law, they were told to bind the law to their Uh, forehead and bind it to their wrist and so even to the present day they have these phylacteries when they go up to the western wall to pray they will bind these phylacteries and you'll watch them as they wrap this little box on their forehead the little box on the forehead has four compartments 
in which are written four passages from the law. And the uh, box on their hand uh, has the same four passages, only not in four compartments, but just uh, in the one open, I mean, it's a totally open compartment uh, there on their hand, the little leather box. But these guys were making big boxes, you know. <laughs> they brought in their phylacteries, you know. They, they were going around with these huge boxes on their forehead and on their hands, you know. To, again, demonstration of, hey, we're really, you know, we got it over you. Uh, we're more spiritual than you. And then they were told to put these tassels on the borders of their garments. And uh, it's to remind them that they are heavenly people. They are spiritual people. And so they would enlarge the borders. They make these long tassels. I mean, I'm really spiritual. And they love the uppermost rooms at the feast. They love the important places. Now, the important place at the feast was at the right hand and at the left hand of the host. And there was always a vying for that place of honor, position, authority. I want to sit at the head table, you know. And, and, and they were always, you know, working and trying to work their way up into this position of prominence in front of the people. And then they loved the chief seats in the synagogues. Now, the, the people in the synagogue, ladies on the right, men on the left, but up in the front of the synagogue, facing the people were the elders. Those were the chief seats, and that's where they liked to sit so that they could look at all the people, you know, that came in. And all the people recognized these are the, the leaders. They loved the greetings in the markets of men. You know, they, they wear their fancy robes and all so that when the people greet them and they walk market, they say, morning, rabbi, morning, rabbi, no, morning, master. They love that. They, they love that spiritual power over others. I'm, you know, to be looked up to as the spiritual man in the community. Jesus said, don't be called rabbi or teacher. For one is your master, and that's even Christ. You are all brothers. We're all of us just brothers in Christ. No one has any spiritual edge over another. God will listen to your prayers as readily as he will listen to mine None of us have any position of hierarchy or standing above one another in the spiritual things. Because God has called me and appointed me as a pastor teacher in the church doesn't mean that I have a closer relationship with God or I have some special in with God and that God will listen to me more than he'll listen to you. doesn't mean that at all. It does mean that I have a greater responsibility before God to be careful of the things that I teach because I will be held accountable uh, for how I teach the word of God. I'll be held accountable before God. But it doesn't make me any closer to God. It doesn't make me any more spiritual. It doesn't give me an edge over you in your relationship with God. Then he said, 
Don't call any man father upon the earth. For one is your father which is in heaven. Now the father is that which has begotten. He is the one who gives life. And spiritually there is only one who has given you spiritual life and that is God. And so don't call any man father. There's no man that gives you spiritual life. It is God who has given you spiritual life. He has begotten you. As Peter said in his epistle, thanks be unto God who has begotten us again unto this living hope by the resurrection. It's God who has begotten us into this spiritual life. And therefore, you're not to call any man Father on earth in a spiritual sense because it is God who gives spiritual life. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jesus said to his disciples, the Gentiles love to exercise lordship. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you, let him be the servant of all. So here again, the repetition of true greatness lies in serving. Serving others. You remember when Jesus was having the last supper with his disciples and how he took the towel and he girded himself and then he went around and began to wash the disciples' feet. And when he was through, he said, have you seen what I have done? They said, yeah. And he said, now you call me Lord and Master and that's correct because I am your Lord and Master. But if I, being your Lord and Master, wash your feet, so ought you also to wash one another's feet. That is, we are to think about serving one another. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. And the way up is down, and the way down is up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He that exalteth himself shall be abased. And so to learn the lessons of just the privilege and the joy of serving the Lord, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. And inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, Jesus said, you've done it unto me. Just a cup of cold water unto a prophet in the name of the Lord reaps a prophet's reward. Serving the blessing, the joy, the glory of just being a servant. Learning to give and to serve one another. Now, Jesus turns directly to the Pharisees. And he begins to pronounce these seven woes. Now, this word woe is a word that is, well, we don't have an English word for the Greek word oi, which is translated woe. 
The Greek word does speak of wrath, but it also speaks of sorrow. It's a combination. So when you read this, don't see fire in the eye of Jesus, but see tears. He's describing, yes, their condition, which is detestable. But there's a combination of judgment and sorrow as he will conclude it with just sort of a lament, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered your children together? I mean, this this lament. And, and so as he is saying this, yes, there is the denouncing of, of their practices, but there's also that sorrow of heart because of their blindness. They, they, they are struggling to be righteous. They have a form of righteousness, but they are so blind to the real truth, and thus, and they won't open their hearts to it. They, they, they are so bound and steeped in their traditions that they're just locked into this system and can't seem to break it. And so, woe unto you. You, you think you're on the right path. You think you're doing the right thing, but you're on the way to destruction. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites. The hypocriti was the actor in the Greek drama. He was the one that would hold up this false face. He might hold up a face that has this big smile on it, but behind his true face was one of sadness and sorrow. The false face. The hypocrite is one who is wearing a false face. One who is putting on an act. One who is one thing on the outside, but something entirely different on the inside. And you know what? God looks on the inside. Man looks on the outward appearance, and you might be able to, de to deceive man, but God looks on the heart. You can't fool God. Woe unto you, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, neither do you allow those that are entering to go in. By their rules, by their rigid rules and regulations, they discouraged man from trying to enter the kingdom of heaven. They had all of their rules and regulations. If you want to, this is what you have to do, this, 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 and impossible. But by laying up all of these barriers, they themselves did not go in. They weren't observing them. They were putting on rules that they themselves weren't really abiding by. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, you make long prayer. Therefore, you're going to receive the greater damnation. Taking advantage of people. Going around and praying upon widows. Not too far from the televangelist today. 
who send out these pleading letters to these little widows on Social Security, suggesting that they go to the bank and borrow some money to send to them to help them out of their latest emergency. Woe unto you. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass the sea and the land to make one proselyte. A proselyte was one who was not a Jew, but who was attracted to the Jewish faith. And there were many people in that day who were attracted to Judaism. And in the synagogues, they would gather with the Jews. They would listen to the scriptures. They were interested in this concept of one God because in that time there was, of course, great pantheism. But there were people to attracted that were attracted to the idea of one God. And they would come to the synagogues on the Sabbath day to listen to the scriptures and all. And these were the people that Paul basically ministered to when he would go around and his missionary journeys go into the synagogue. These were the people that he attracted. They listened to him. They were fascinated with what Paul had to say. Now, they were not proselytes. The proselyte was one who went through the rite of circumcision, one who was baptized into the Jewish faith, and uh, actually they became even more zealous uh, than did the Jews many times concerning their religion. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You encircle the earth to make a proselyte. When you have made him, he becomes twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, whosoever swears, swears by the temple, and this is the way they were interpreting now. We told you the scribes were giving, now, you know, if you, you shall not, you know, take an oath or forswear thyself. Now, what does that mean? What if you swear by the temple? Is that binding? Do you have to keep it? And so they said, no, if you just swear by the temple, that's a little ambiguous. It isn't a binding oath. So you can swear by the temple, but you can get out of that. You don't have to do it. But if you swear by the gold that's in the temple, ho, 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 watch out, that's binding. Yeah, you, have to, you have to keep that one. If you swear by the altar, again, a little ambiguous, you don't, you don't have to keep that vow. You, you can break that. that. That isn't a binding oath. But if you swear by the sacrifice that is on the altar, oh, man, you've had it. You've got to keep that one. And, and so going down the line with all of these crazy interpretations, Jesus said, you fools and blind what is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? The temple? Or what is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? So Jesus, again, this is what they were teaching, but now he lays it straight. Whosoever, therefore, shall swear by the altar... He swears by it and all of the things that are on it. It's binding. Whosoever shall swear by the temple swears by it and by him that dwelleth therein. You're swearing by God. 
And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. You've omitted, omitted the weightier matters of the law, of judgment and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, but you shouldn't leave the others undone. Now he speaks of giving their tithes. They were so scrupulous in their tithing. One-tenth of, the, um, uh, of your crops was a tithe unto the Lord. You would bring in a tenth of your wheat, a tenth of your fruit. You would tithe it to the Lord. Well, these fellows went, they all had their little spice gardens in the window boxes in the kitchen. They all grew their little anise and their cumin and their mint. And these guys would tear off the mint leaves, nine for me, one for the Lord, you know. Count the little seeds of the spices, you know. Nine for me and one for the Lord. And they were tithing of their spices, measuring them out, tithing. And yet, they were cheating. They were unscrupulous in their dealings with others. They were unmerciful. And Jesus said, you're emphasizing the wrong things. You ought to tithe, yes. But don't leave out being merciful, being fair, being honest, being true. You blind guides, he said, which strain at a net and swallow a camel. Literally, rather than strain at a net, in the Greek it is you strain out a net. Now, when they would drink their wine, they would pour it through a cloth. Because, you know, little gnats and all come and they land on the cup and they land in the wine and some of them get caught and sort of drowned in the wine. And, and so they would always pour it through a cloth into the cup before they would drink it to strain out any little gnats that might be in it because a gnat was unclean an unclean animal, an insect. But Jesus said, you strain out these little gnats, but you swallow camels. In other words, you, you are very exacting on, on stupid little things, and then you just, you know, these weightier things of justice, mercy, and all, you just uh, ignore those. And so he gets after them. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within you're full of extortion, you're full of excesses, you're gluttonous. You heap up for yourself excesses. Oh, the outside looks good, you make it real clean, but inside there's extortion. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. What's inside, Jesus said, is really more important than what 
is outside and what is inside, if it is clean, then it'll work its way out. Get your heart right before God. Your life will become right before God. This outward religion just doesn't make it. God is interested in what's going on in your heart. Get your heart clean. Clean up within. The outside will follow. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but inside of them there are dead men's bones and all kinds of putridness. Now, under the law, if you would touch a dead body, ceremonially you would be unclean and not be able to enter into the temple to worship until you went through the rites of purification. If you touched anything that was touched by a dead body, you would be unclean. And so the sepulchers, to touch a sepulcher because there was a dead body also touching it, would make you spiritually unclean. Now, most of the sepulchers or the people were buried alongside the roads. It is interesting today that as you travel in Israel, you will see many of these large limestone tombs right along the road. And many of the roads follow the ancient Roman roads. And as they have excavated for the new highways, you'll find alongside of the road just scores of these big limestone tombs because most of them were buried alongside of the road. Now when the pilgrims were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, in order to worship at the feast, if they would happen to touch one of these sepulchers on the way to Jerusalem, they get wiped out. You can't, you're unclean. You can't enter in and worship God. So what they would do, the month of Adar, as the people would be readying to journey, they would go out and whitewash. They'd paint all of these sepulchers so they really stand out so you know not to touch it. You don't, you know, you're tired, you don't lean up against that rock and then find, ooh, 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 so, uh, you know, might as well go home, you know, can't go into worship. So they would whitewash them. And as you were journeying along the road, all these beautiful whitewashed sepulchers, and they did look beautiful, but inside of them, there were decaying bodies, bones. And he said, that's the way you, you know, outside you make yourself look so beautiful, so spiritual, so nice. But inside there's just putrefaction. So outwardly you appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets, and there in the uh, Kidron Valley, just down below the Temple Mount area, you see these beautiful tombs of the prophets that have been built there in the walls of the cliff. Ornate, glorious 
tomb of Zechariah and uh, tomb of uh, Absalom and so forth down there. And you've built these tombs of the prophets. And you garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. They put all kinds of ornamentation on them. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have killed the prophets like they did, you know. We're better than they are. If we had lived in their days, we wouldn't have done those things. But Jesus said, be witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of those who killed the prophets. And you fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you hope to escape the damnation of Gehenna? Heavy duty. His scathing denunciation of outward religion, showy religion, people who have a great show are ostentatious. Now you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have destroyed the prophets. But Jesus said, behold, I'm going to send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of them you are going to kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and you will persecute them from city to city. And as you read the book of Acts, you find out that that is exactly what happened to the apostles as they went out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were killed, they were crucified, they were scourged in the synagogues, they were persecuted from city to city. Read Paul's description of the things that he endured at the hands of the Jews. That upon you may come all the righteous blood that has been shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things are going to come upon this generation. You say, oh, we're, we, you know, we're better than our fathers. We wouldn't have done. He said, hey, the whole guilt of the whole thing is going to be on you. Now, from the beginning, the righteous blood has often been shed by wicked men. There is an enmity in the heart of sinful man against God. And that enmity against God is carried out in persecution and seeking to silence the witness of God's prophets. So that this animosity of the wicked against the righteous has been demonstrated from the beginning of time. The two sons of Adam, Abel was a righteous man. He brought his sacrifice to the Lord by faith and God honored and blessed his sacrifice. 
Cain was an evil man. God rejected Cain's sacrifice. And he became angry at God and at Abel, who was God's righteous representative, and he killed Abel. The innocent blood, the righteous blood of Abel was shed on the ground. Remember, God said, his blood crieth up to me from the ground. Now, Zacharias, the son of Barachias, creates a problem. And there are many suggested solutions to the problem. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, and you might turn there in your Bible, chapter 24, verse 20. This is during the reign of Joash, a wicked king, and the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, or Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people, and he said unto them, Thus saith God, he was prophesying to the people, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord? Because when you do that, you cannot prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. And they conspired against him. He was giving them God's word. He was telling them the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth. And so they conspired against him and they stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Right there in the court of the house of the Lord. This man was stoned. According to the Jewish tradition, uh, this is why the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians because of the innocent blood of Zacharias that was shed there on the temple. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada the father of Zacharias had done unto him, but he slew his son. And when he died, he said, the Lord look upon it and require it. Now Jesus is saying the righteous blood was going to be required on this generation from Abel to Zechariah. The interesting thing is that this Zechariah, we are told, is the son of Jehoiada. And yet Jesus makes reference to Zacharias, the son of Barachias but probably referring to this because if he talks about you know, the blood being required of this generation, how do you explain it? One other interesting thing, of course, the, the first book in the Old Testament of the Jewish scriptures is the book of Genesis, of course. And there in the book of Genesis, you have the righteous animosity against I mean, the wicked's animosity against the righteous, the slaying of Abel. In the order of the books in the Jewish Bible, Second Chronicles is the last book in the Jewish Bible, in the order that they have set them out. And we are at the 
close to the end of Second Chronicles, so that actually from the first book of the Old Testament to the last book of the Old Testament in the Jewish Bible, you have the righteous being persecuted and killed by the wicked. So you see the complete cycle. Now, how is it that he's called the son of Jehoiada here and yet son of Barakias? Now, the prophet Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, who lived some 400 years after this time, actually more than that, about 450 years later, he was the son of Barakiah. But we don't have any record of his being martyred. It is possible that it is a reference to this later Zechariah who was one of the last of the Old Testament prophets. After him, there was a long period of silence for 400 years when God did not speak through prophets to the people. And it could be that he was also murdered or put to death by the people and it isn't recorded in the scripture. However, there are other possibilities. This particular Zechariah in Second Chronicles, the son of Jehoiada, oftentimes in the scripture, they do not, um, when they say the son of Jehoiada, it could be a grandson of Jehoiada. And still he would be called the son of Jehoiada. For instance, in the book of Daniel, you have Belshazzar, who is called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. In reality, he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. His father's name was Neopalazar. And thus he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, but because of the, no one really knew of uh, much of, of uh, the father of Belshazzar, so he was called the son of Nebuchadnezzar because he was the important name in the history. And thus it is possible that Jehoiada had a son, Barachaeus, who then bore uh, Zechariah. And he would still be called in that sense the son of Jehoiada. That's a possibility. Or it is possible that the Zechariah of the Old Testament prophets some 400 years later was the one that Jesus was referring to. Or one further possibility is that when the scriptures were being copied, the copyist, uh, when he wrote down uh, the blood of Zacharias, uh, he could have just thought, well, that's the son of Barachias because that's the Zechariah of the Old Testament and may have you know, just made a mistake in the copying. We believe that the scriptures are inspired of God and are inerrant in their original writings, which we don't have. We believe that through the copying of the scriptures, it's possible that there could be little slip-ups like this with names by those who were copying the scriptures, that this, if you actually found the original manuscript that Matthew wrote, which God won't let you find because people would be worshiping it. We'd make a shrine and everybody would travel, you know, all over the world to uh, 
about this thing. And of course, they'd be selling little portions of it for a lot of money. And, you know, and, and people would, would begin to worship the thing. So God uh, hasn't let us have any of the original uh, writings, the autographed copies. But, uh, uh, and, and thus, those are the possibilities. Um, Jerome, one of the early church fathers who spent a lot of time translating the scriptures, declared that uh, it was uh, Jehoiada, uh, should have been the name here, the son of Jehoiada. And he said that in the copies, some of the copies he had, Jehoiada was in there. So it could be a copyist error. Uh, we don't know. But Jesus said, and, and you know, that's just to explain a possible discrepancy that you see here. Jesus said, I say unto you, all of these things, the guilt of all of this is going to come on this generation. Why? Well, as Stephen, when he was defending himself before the council, talked about all of the prophets that God had sent to them, he said, which of the prophets of God did you not persecute or kill? Just name me one prophet that you accepted. Name one that you didn't imprison, persecute, or kill. And he said, but you're worse than all of your fathers because you killed the one they were all prophesying of, even Jesus Christ. So upon this generation, the guilt of all of the righteous blood that has been shed by the wicked is going to come on this generation because they're the generation that are going to kill the Son of God. And in a couple of days, they do. This is, this is it. Jesus is... You see, he's gone too far as far as they're concerned. They cannot allow him to go on. They've got to get rid of him or, or they're going to be out of a job. And so they've determined he's got to go. And this is the final word that he has to them. It's a scathing indictment. And yet, and yet, here they are as wicked as can be. And still he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You that have killed the prophets and stoned those which were sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together even as a hen doth gather her chicks? But you would not. As wicked as they were, still he loved them. Still he desired to do good for them. Still he wanted to protect them. As a mother hen fluffs out her feathers and the little chicks run in underneath and hide from danger. Even as they run underneath the wings and feel the warmth during the night, the closeness of the mother hen. So Jesus said, I would have gathered you. I would have protected you. I wanted that closeness with you, but you would not. Man's failure to receive God's love, God's provision, leads to disaster. Because your house is left unto you desolate. You have no more defense. I'm not going to stand up for you any longer. 
You have forsaken God. God is going to forsake you. Your house, this house, this temple is going to be left desolate. The city of Jerusalem is going to be left desolate. And how true within 40 years, over one million Jews in Jerusalem were slain when the Roman troops came in and devastated the city. For I say unto you, you will not see me henceforth until you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. He's going to die. He will rise again. He will ascend into heaven and he will wait until the Jews begin to pray, oh God, send our Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We read in the book of Hebrews how that God has put all things in subjection unto Jesus, but we do not yet see all things in subjection. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. And he is sitting there expecting, waiting, until God has made his enemies his footstool. Today, Israel is in deep trouble. They are on the verge of a civil war, which will to their enemies be an indication of their weakness and an invitation to attack. The future of the modern nation of Israel has never been in such a precarious position as it is tonight. The nation is divided, deeply divided, over the present government's peace initiatives, the surrendering of land for peace, and the endangering of the security of the nation of Israel by the returning of the Golan Heights to Syria by giving Jordan or Jericho and the Jordan Valley there to the control of the PLO plus the Gaza Strip. Those in the settlements are ready to fight, to hold on to that which they have invested their lives in. And there are strong demonstrations going on in Israel over these very issues. It's divided. It could be that we are getting extremely close to that time when they realize that their only hope for survival and the future is in the Messiah and that they will soon be praying, come quickly. Lord Jesus. It is interesting that all over Israel you'll see yellow banners with red writing which says, get ready, Messiah is coming. They are beginning to call out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they do, they'll see him again. 
Then shall they see the Son of Man coming with clouds and great glory. And they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Can't be far off. It's rather exciting. You know, as I look at our world, we are in perilous times. The California state educational system is causing children in four grades to take a test called class. The state legislature right now is considering a bill that will make it illegal for them to reveal to the parents the questions in this test called class. They are requiring it in this new bill that is before the state legislature, they're requiring a student to take the test before he can graduate from high school. And they are forcing this upon the school districts, whether they want it or not, making it a requirement for graduation. And they have told the teachers that if they speak out against it, they'll lose their tenure and lose their jobs or if they dare to reveal the contents of the test or copy the contents of the test. I mean, this sounds so anti-un-American that you wonder what's going on. There is a bill before our state legislature right now to enforce the taking of this test called class, in which students are told to give their opinions. They, they read of some case of incest and then you're to write if any of things like this have ever happened to you as a part of the English part of the testing. Ask to reveal things that are going on in their homes. An invasion of privacy. We're in perilous times. This past week, I was in Colorado, and a captain in the Air Force took me into NORAD. Quite an experience. He was the Air Force advisor to the general who sits there at that monitor watching the screens that show the invasion of our space, airspace, through the radar or through the uh, guided systems and so forth. And this Air Force officer was the one who is to inform the general of all of the uh, invasion of our space by uh, unidentified objects coming as airplanes. There's another fellow that's on the other side who identifies the missiles and so forth. And this captain was telling me that people in America today have a false sense of security because because he said there are as many or more missiles aimed today at the United States than there has ever been. We are under a greater threat of destruction than we have ever been. And yet we are letting down our defenses. It's as though the Cold War is over. It's as though everything is peace and safety. But he said there are actually more missiles aimed at the United States today from Russia and Russian subs and 
these giant bear bombers and all, than there has ever been. The threat is greater than it's ever been. And yet we're relaxing. I don't tell you these things to scare you. I just tell, you, tell them to you to get you excited because the Lord's got to be coming soon. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'm one that's saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Matthew in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the Temple Mount. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 23 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, thank you for your Word. Lord, as we look ahead to next Sunday and the disciples ask you specifically of the times the signs of the times and of your coming and the end of the age. We thank you, Lord, that you took the time to explain to them just what those signs were. And thus, Lord, as we look at our world in light of what you said, help us, Lord, to come into that awareness, consciousness, that the coming of the Lord is at hand coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So bless us, Lord, as we study the 24th chapter. Let our hearts be prepared for your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The Word for Today is pleased to present a timely book entitled Philippians, a Bible study for women by Kay Smith, wife of Pastor Chuck. In times of hardship and doubt, are you filled with joy? If this less-than-perfect world has robbed you of joy and filled you instead with fear and worry, you must learn the secrets found in the book of Philippians. Join Kay as she discovers the Apostle Paul's top secrets to a life filled with joy, available to every Christian woman today. 
Sometimes in the deepest trials, God will so minister to us, or the Holy Spirit will so minister to us, that even in the deepest trials, we can have joy. And that's what we're trying to impress on the people's heart. We have joy just because we have Jesus. For more information on how to order your copy, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org or call toll-free at 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-9673. And godliness with contentment is great gain.